Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is July 31st, 2014, and this is 1,398 of the Survival Podcast. I've got an interesting one for you today. Mexican Joe, also known as uh, Joe Sabedra, uh asked to come on the show, and I've seen him bouncing around the TSP communities and around the internet and prepping as a whole for many years, so I agreed to have him on. He had kind of a shotgun approach to things. I wanted to talk about a cabillion different things, and I'm a little leery of interviews like that, but I have to say this one came out really good. I think you'll enjoy it. We're going to be talking about everything from uh, prepper training, prepper networks, and the difference between a network and a group, soft and hard prepper skills, homesteading chickens, you name it, we're going to talk about it. I'll have Joe on in just a minute. Before we do that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day, number one today, HarvestEating.com. Hey, we're going to talk about eating chickens today, a little bit anyway with Joe. Uh, you want to know how to make those chickens taste great and add on to uh, some of the recipes I gave you yesterday? Check out HarvestEating.com, where Chef Keith Snow will help you learn how to cook seasonally and locally and teach you that prepping, I'm sorry, cooking is a life skill and a prepper skill. It definitely is. If you don't think cooking is a prepper skill, you've never lived on MREs for six months like I did at one time. You learn to get creative in those situations. I suggest you learn how to get creative now and enjoy those skills on good times and have them available and bad. Check it out today, harvesteating.com. Next up today, Herbs of a different kind, westernbotanicals.com. Western Botanicals is my go-to source for all things herbal. And they are also preppers at heart. They have a really cool uh, page on their website about emergency preparedness and four important herbs they recommend you have around for emergencies. There's ginger, garlic, cinnamon, and cayenne. If you want to know what to do with those, in addition to their typical link in the uh, show notes today, I'll have a link to that article as well. But I'll tell you what, I go to Western Botanicals for everything and anything that I need that's herbal. Uh, and I mean that. I use their stuff every day. I'm going to find out from them if they're going to get uh, my anti-inflammation formula, is what they had it called, back on the website under a new name. I think they're working on that right now. If you want that, though, it's mostly turmeric root. And uh, it's what I use when I'm achy and sore. And it's the best thing I've found for that from the herbal world. Uh, I guess the government decided by putting the words anti-inflammatory on it, it made it a drug or some stupid crap like that, so they had to remove it from their website. But if you call them and tell them that's what you're looking for, uh, you can get it, and you can ask them what the new name of it is, and ask them if they're going to get it under that new name on the site. I think it may be the case. They've changed the name already, but they're, uh, they're getting rid of the inventory they have with the current label before they do that. I'm not sure, but I'll tell you what. It's the best thing I've found when I'm sore and achy from a day out on the homestead. Uh, and with that, let's get into the year that was the episode. Uh, let's go back to 1398. China, an unsettling transition. Emperor Chu Yang Sheng, the founder of the Ming Dynasty, has passed away. He overthrew the Mongols, restored China to self-rule, purged and reformed the bureaucracy, repaired and restored over 40,000 reservoirs, 
reforested China, setting the country on course to rebuild their merchant navy. All this was done in a little over 20 years. He will be succeeded by his grandson, Shun Yuen. Unfortunately, he won't last long. His uncles will rebel against him. He will die in a fire. But some say Shu Yuen escaped. We will never know for sure. My take by Alex Shrug, who puts these awesome segments together for us at tspwiki.com. At the library, I ran across a controversial book that suggested that the Chinese of the time discovered America and sparked the Renaissance. The book was made into a TV special, which I watched and couldn't believe that grown men and women were participating in this massive television scam. It began with several Chinese officials hiding the evidence of a voyage in 1421 by a fellow named Zwang. Zhuang He. He was one of the supporters of the, of the uncles mentioned above. Zhuang He did make a voyage to India and the Middle East, but beyond that, I remain unconvinced. My take. You know, when it comes to history and the victors writing the history books, many times I wonder if we really know true history at all. Let me try this a little bit different of a way to put this in perspective for you. According to your history books, a lot of different things happened. Some of these things seem pretty well documented throughout literature of the time, but if someone wrote something down and then had it written down again and then had it written down again and set things up so that things appeared to be sourced, and all of this information was from, let's say, 400, 500, or 1,000 years ago, and you read it and believed it to be true, how would you ever know that it was not? Remember as we study history to always look through the lens of history with a couple things. One, the context of the time, and two, a healthy dose of skepticism on anything that leads you to believe something that the author would have wanted you to believe. That's my take by Jack Spierko on the history segment from 1398. I do feel compelled to not read the entire other segment uh, from 1398 that I want to point out today. Actually, there's two. It's one called The Scots Discovered America, which you can read for yourself. But I also want to read Tamerlane, A Million Dead. Just, or not even read it, just give you a little bit on it. Because I just told you that Emperor Chu Ying Cheng threw the Mongols out of China. And he did. You might think the Mongols are done. Well, Tamerlane is part of the Mongols. And uh, the Mongols are not done. They killed a million people this year in Delhi, uh, India. These are pagan Hindus. And uh, they were ordered murdered by Tamerlane. Uh, in fact, many of his men were told, if you don't kill enough people, you yourself will be dead. And uh, on the way uh, out of there, they managed to bury 4,000 Armenians alive. Um So they're they're not gone yet. I wanted to point that out, that they're not gone yet. If you want an interesting thing to think about with a million people being murdered and what do you do with all the bodies and how this goes into modern history, or at least recent history, take a look at the 1398 page for tspwiki.com. And remember, when we look through the lens of history, not only to have that skepticism and that historical context, but also try to remember that The more things change, often the more they remain the same. Anyway, with that, let's get into the uh, main topic of today's show. Uh, today's show, again, is with a uh, well-known prepper and uh, creator of the North, Northeast Texas Preppers Network, former United States military, uh, army, actually, uh, used to drive around in M1 Abrams tanks. Uh, today, he's addicted to training, and uh, he's addicted to learning at all levels. 
And with that, hey, Joe, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Well, thank you, Jack. How you doing? I'm doing good, man. Glad to have you on. I've, I, I've seen you bouncing around the Internet for a long time in our community and other prepper communities. You're kind of like me. You're, you're in everything prepper and self-sufficiency. But uh, first question I always have for every guest, can you tell us a little bit about your background, not really a resume perspective, but more like how did you end up as a prepper in the first, first place? Uh, well, really what it was was um, I, I got a buddy who uh, gave me James Rawls' first book. Um, I was in the middle of a divorce and didn't really have time to deal with it. And then once I got separated, I had nothing but time. So I got into the book, and since I was suddenly single and had all this free time, I just really dove into it really deep. Um, and now I've kind of become, I guess, the staple for everybody around us, all, all the guys that we were started prepping together. And because I've got more time, I'm, you know, like a shotgun blast, I'm all over everything. So I'm, I am, I'm just, I'm just everywhere into anything preppered. Um, once I get something and it becomes a fetish, I'll do it until I think I've got it down pretty good. And then I'll move on to something else. Yeah, um, what is what is your thought process behind being so diverse in the skill set and, and, and investigating and learning so many things? Well, a lot of I get a lot of people that ask me, you know, I don't know how to get into it or where to start. I'm like, just find one thing that you're interested in, grab it, um, work with it, and when you think you got it down, you got it, you know, and then don't stop there. A lot of a lot of preppers that I see, they stop where I just move on to the next thing and. It was medical supplies, and then it was essential oils, and then it was canning, and, you know, of course, being a guy, you know, the guns are always involved and all the cool stuff and the gadgets. Uh, it's just, it's all over the place. You know, rocket stoves, gardening, um, I, I've got, I got my own place here about three years ago, and it's like you, you know, you get there and you just hit it hard, and, I mean, I put in 17 trees in the last three years. Yeah, definitely. And what I think a lot of people find, if they'll stop worrying about, you know, trying to do everything and pick something, then that one thing they're interested in, first of all, they'll do it and they'll do it until they, I was going to say they'll do it and they'll do it well, but no, they may not. You may do it and do it crap. Um, but since you're interested in it, you, that will lead to a little bit better and a little bit better. And like you said, you'll master it. But by the time you've done that, it will naturally lead you not just through interest but through necessity to something else. So if we look at something like, okay, so you start gardening. So you start gardening and you, you grow a bunch of stuff. And then you start eating it and you go, this is really good. And then all of a sudden you're sitting there and you're looking at like five buckets of tomatoes. Right. And you go, okay, I can't eat five buckets of tomatoes before they go bad. So now I've got to do something with them. So the next thing you know – you need to store them. So you're either learning how to do flash freezing or canning or something like that. Well, then you got a whole crap ton of tomatoes. And then you're sitting there going, well, I can only make so many, you know, things of spaghetti before I'm going to get bored. So now i got to learn how to do something with all these tomatoes. So then you, you, you start learning to do more cooking. And then the house is hot because it's winter time or summertime, so you're thinking, i got to figure out how to cook outside. So then you start learning Dutch oven cooking or rocket stove cooking. And then you're like... Well, the freaking garden's full of weeds now, so if I had some chickens, they'd take care of the weeds. So then you get chickens, and you got to learn to deal with chickens. And then the chickens get old, and you start to learn how to at least call some of them out. So it's like if you start anywhere, and that was just some random place I picked, but just about anywhere you start, you're just going to keep finding new things. 
So I, I really love your advice to start with something you're at least interested in or like. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it, if you're interested in it, I don't care, you know, really what it is, do it. You're, I, I'm gardening. I got into gardening, uh, you know, when I first got divorced and I was playing with that and it worked, it worked okay for a little while. And then it just, and then I moved here and I've been struggling with it. I mean, I'm in a heavy forested area, so I'm having to deal with my little pockets of sunlight. And my garden does okay. Uh, my buddy that works with me and does a lot of this, his is much better, but he's out in the open. So what I did was, and it was funny, you mentioned this on a podcast the other day, trees. I can grow fruit trees like nobody's business. So I've got 20-some fruit trees, you know, plus all the ones that were here. You know, so they're not producing this year, but in the next couple of years, they will be. Sure. I mean, an old guy told me, you know, when's the best time to plant a tree? 20 years ago was the answer. What's the second answer? Today. Today, absolutely. I completely agree with that. Um, and in all of this, you've gotten involved in uh, a prepper network. Um, and I don't know if you are involved in an individual group or not. I don't dislike groups, but I think groups can lead to a lot of problems for no reason. In other words, if you get a bunch of people together they're convinced that zombies are coming tomorrow and they buy a bug-out location together, uh, they may spend half of their time fighting with each other and half their time mumbling about each other in the background because each has their own ideas about the fortification that needs to be made for the zombies, and they can end up complete enemies in two years, and then there's no zombies and all you have is an expensive piece of land and nothing's done right and everybody's mad at each other. Right. You seem to have moved more toward like a network. Can you talk about maybe the difference between a network and a group and how that might mitigate some of those concerns? Well, actually, you know, what you just said there actually has happened. We started out as a, as a group. Um, I was I was suddenly single. I'm out there. I'm in, I'm in a uh, like a rental house. Uh, I've got my buddy that lives down the road. He lives in town, not a good place to be. And we had one buddy that was out in the country. So we put a group together, and the idea was to kind of, you know, everybody, when the zombies come, everybody go there, have their stuff staged there, and this and that. Well, then my buddy moved, got bought another piece of property outside of town and built a house on it. Took him a couple of years, but he got it done. Um, I got my place, and I'm out a different direction. So all of us are different directions. We're all 10 miles apart, so it's not bad, but we've all, why would you bug out when you can bug in? Correct. So it became that we're a network in that, you know, if he needs help with electrical or with some gardening or whatever, I go over and help him. You know, we help each other out. We train together. His thing is mechanics. My thing is chickens and rabbits and, and, and trees and his gardening. You know, his garden took off this year like crazy. It's the first year he's ever done one. And he's just got just an entire kitchen counter of vegetables and produce. You know, and everybody's like, how did you do that? And he goes, well, it's easy. I watched all Joe's mistakes. <laughs> because, I mean, we're big fans of mistakes. You're not yeah, gonna, oh, absolutely. You're not going to do it right, and you're not going to do it right every time. So take your mistake, learn from it. Don't let it, don't let it dissuade you from moving forward. Well, I, I agree, and I think that, like, I just think a network is more practical than a group if, if, if we keep those – defined um, definitions. So usually when you think of a group, and I guess a network is still a group, but when you say survival group, you usually think about exactly what we talked about. There's this central place. Everybody's going to get together, load up the ARs and the M14s, and fight off the Illuminati. Okay, great. 
Well, the odds of doing that are pretty low. The odds, if you're doing this modern homesteading lifestyle with all these skill sets, that if you're in my network and I'm in your network and there's 10 or 12 other families or groups or people in that network, that we're all going to come to the conclusion that we all are going to need one expensive piece of equipment that we're going to use like once a year. Right. Pretty high. Now, making that piece of equipment something that can go from location to location to location as part of a network makes a lot of practical sense that probably will be utilized. All of our shit sitting in a pit in the ground somewhere at some dark camp called, you know, Prepper Encampment Illuminati Anti, you know, World War Three may just sit there forever for no good reason. I, I, You know me, I don't say that some of the really big global level things can't happen. I'm just saying we need to actually be prepared for the things that are going to happen first. And I find a lot of people that have these super secret scrolls. I have one guy, honest to God, I would love to show you my bug out location, Jack. Would you come see it? <laughs> well, maybe. There would be one condition. What's that? A lot 20 miles before we get there, I'd have to blindfold yeah, back you. And I honestly said, I don't even give a shit that much, dude. I just don't care. I, re- I said, if you think that I am in, in such a condition after all of these years, that if the shit hit the fan, I would be coming to raid your location. I don't even want to talk to you about prepping, right? So there's that impractical thing where what good does that bug out location do if that guy loses his job? Or is his kid gets sick and has leukemia. But what good does a mutual support network do in both of those instances? Yeah, nobody knows where it is. You know, what I'm saying, though, in a mutual support network, though, if, if one of your guys is in that situation, are you not going to reach out and try to help them? Right. So to me, the network makes a lot more sense. Well, and it also, because everybody knows where everybody is, we each help each other, and we get together, and we barbecue and all that quite a bit, so we have our internal... Uh, I guess our internal politics are straightened out, so everybody knows how everybody's going to react in a certain situation. It just it, it works out better. I mean, if it, and then if something happens at one location, you've got a backup location. Each one well, can use each other as a backup. Well, and if you want to build a freaking bunker on your property, that's your deal. Go ahead. I might even come help you do it, but we're not going to fight about it because if I don't want one on my property, I'm not going to do it. Right. Whereas if you get a group together, a lot of times when you have common property, you know, you, I've seen it with, with Paul Wheaton with his permaculture commune, I guess you'd call it, where like his presentation at Permaculture Voices was how to have 30 people live in one place together without a knife fight. That's hard to do. Right. right? And then, and then, you know, that's a bunch of hippies. You get a bunch of people with guns <laughs> together, you got a whole different uh, mentality, I guess you would say. So, it, it, it does seem to solve a lot of those issues. And then the other thing is, well, if everybody knows where everybody is, well, what about that? Well, if we were going to have a common bug out location, we'd all know where that is. So that doesn't seem like a concern. And it seems like it opens up the possibility of a larger network than you would have with a group. If somebody wanted to be in my network, like a mutual support network, my, my, uh, what's up, what I'm trying to say, like my hurdle for them to jump over to get into that, is going to be reasonable, but it's going to it's going to be somewhat liberal. If if the the question is, do you have unfettered access and equal claim to a common piece of property and a pledge of ultimate sacrifice for mutual support if necessary, 
my 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 hurdle for that, you're probably going to need a pole vaulter's pole to get over that one. Yeah. So it opens the opportunity to be a little bit more uh, large and therefore more diverse and more functional, I think. Well, yeah. I mean, and one of our big things here recently, it's been our fetish lately, has been communications. I mean, if everybody's 10, 15 miles apart, we can do that with radios. Sure. So it's like if the zombie apocalypse is coming and they're coming, you know, down from, you know, from Greenville or wherever we're at, you know, the guy up north can call and tell us, you know, and we can get up there and help him or whatever. So it, it, it's the network is it, the network's actually actually national because, of course, we've got our local people here in the county and in the next city. But I've got people that have been to your uh, uh, some of your permaculture classes who got with me and was like, hey, can you come look at this? And then we talked to, I actually, it was uh, Texas Dawn out of Longview. Oh, yeah, okay, I remember yeah, her. Yeah, you've got to go out and see her place. Oh, my God, she's she's got Jack Spearco on steroids property. <laughs> she, oh, she had all of these trees, and they were just, and she was getting ready, I'm, are you going to put those in pots? Yeah, I want to put them over here. I'm like, don't put them over there. They can be seen from the road. You've got this huge piece of property. Keep it back here. Google bed. Excuse me. Hugel beds like crazy. She got me into Hugel culture, you know, and you'd been talking about it, but she showed it to me. Mm -hmm. um, being part of a network is not just people physically showing up. It's people communicating with you and showing you how to do something right. And they could be across the country. Um, uh, uh, well, definitely. I mean, I would actually tell you that I would say, you know, TSP is a network. Oh, yes. Big time. In fact, and we're a network made up of sub-networks, so we have, like, the, the whole TSP family. And then there's the people that are really dedicated to the forum. And then there's people that are really dedicated to one or two or three boards on the forum. And then there's the people that are really dedicated to the Facebook community. And then there's people that are really dedicated to the Zello community. And what I, what I like about that approach is, you know, it lets people pick the, the, the people they associate with the most and the means by which they communicate the most, because different people have different preferences and also different time limitations. So some people just don't have time to every Saturday meet at somebody's house. They just they have 13 kids or 27 dogs or whatever it is, and they, they just can't do it. Right, right. And you know, like I said, yeah, I mean, it's some people are Facebook. I've got people that uh, kind of are in my network that don't Facebook because the NSA is watching and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, okay, that's fine. So we just... You know, get together, or text or whatever. Sure. Um, and then, but that's because the NSA can't see text. Yeah, yeah, they can't see text. Either, yeah. <laughs> and then we'll see. It's like you were just saying. You know, like you're. It, it is a community. The whole thing is a community. But I've been talking to people. I've become close friends with people that I've learned that I met through your community. Um, uh, Tabitha from Thumper Lane. Okay. Yeah, I remember her. Too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She was. Uh, she was the Macy's girl. Um, me and her have become really good friends, and we. We're constantly talking back and forth, going over what she's doing versus what I'm doing and all kinds of stuff. So she's been a big resource for me. And she's in Oregon, so she's nowhere near me. Sure. You know, so the network can be as far as far away as you want it to be or as close as you want it to be. Um, I'm, I've got guys up there in your, in your area that come down here once a month and we get together and we do whatever kind of training we're going to do. Um, yeah. Some of the stuff that we do here that I guess is kind of the bigger stuff, some of these guys are more uh, militia-style guys, and some of them are prepper, and some of them are a mix. But, you know, like teaching people long-term food storage, uh, canning, pressure canning. Uh, the new one I'm being asked a lot for is uh, topographical map reading. 
you know, uh, radio procedures. Uh, you know, and that's something I know, like like me, you're prior service military. That's one of those things that you just don't even think about the fact that anybody doesn't know, right? A topographical map, you just, like, if you've been through basic, you, you know, you might not be the greatest orienteer out there, but the basic is a topographical map and, and, and spurs and saddles and ridges and formations and, and elevation changes and all. You end up at a point just kind of taking for granted that, well, everybody knows that, but but not everybody knows that skill. Well, and, and I get people that ask me, well, why do I care? Why do I have to read a map? I've got this map. I'm like, okay, that map's got roads on it, and that's really about it. It's your standard atlas or map that you buy in a gas station. I said, the problem is if you have to traverse from point A to point B on foot, you have to see problems in between there, like there's a cliff, there's a lake. You know, how are you going to, you know, how, do you want to go around the lake or do you want to use the bridge? Yeah, there's all these other things, and people are like, oh, I'll just, I can get from here to there in 10 minutes. Um, you better look at those contour lines. They're pretty close. Well, and disasters usually result in these things like bridges not being there, roads being blocked, large amounts of traffic, and, and the potential to have to use an alternate route is huge. But I think even even with that said, I don't want to do this right now because we'll derail the whole interview, but right. I bet if you and I sat down for an hour and tried to come up with applications that people would use topographical maps for, we could come up with dozens, if not maybe a hundred different reasons you might want to know how that works. As a permaculturist, if I'm looking at a remote piece of property, that tells me tremendous amounts about a piece of land without me ever having set foot on it. It tells me certain things about solar aspect, cold traps, thermal uh, thermal banks, all different types of things that, that I can get off of that topographical look that a flat map would never tell me. Right. Well, and, and that's just one instance. I'm sure, like I said, I don't want to go too far with it because we'll we'll spend an hour on it. But yeah, but that's the perfect. You could probably just keep rolling out applications for being able to look at elevation changes on a map. Well, you know, you're what you just said right there about about permaculture. I mean, with with my map that I just got, and I get my map, and I don't get anything from them. It's from uh, mytopo.com. Sure. Um, you just plug in your zip code, find your find your house on the map, drag the map around, click, tell them whether you want it laminated or whatever. It's like thirty bucks. You know, no big deal, and they sent it to you in a couple of days. But with my property, once I found my property, I'm like, oh, okay, now I see what's beyond the trees I can't see. And I can do my gardening on contour. So, yeah, that, you know, it, it goes on and on. Well, and I've had people tell me, what do I need a topographical map to do swales for, Jack? I'm just going to go out there with a laser level and shoot it. Okay, well, if, you're con if your elevation changes are significant and you can kind of eyeball – it's kind of that direction that a contour line runs. That might work. If you're on a piece of property that's relatively flat, a lot of times, they're, they're, first of all, there's always contours. But a lot of times you think, well, it's, it kind of goes downhill this way. And, and you might spend hours farting around with a laser level before you figure out, you know what? That's not how that land falls. I have a wonky place like that on my property that I won't say anything about because it will ruin it for future students. But when I teach the laser level, I go to one spot and I show them how it works. And I take them over there and I set it up and I say, here, find the contour lines. And, and, and I, I sit back with a beer and laugh because well, they do everything I did the first time I shot that area. And it's so counterintuitive to the way that landform flows. But if you pull up the USGI topo, you go, oh, okay, that, the, the whole property's on a giant saddle. 
and that corner does whatever that corner does. Again, I'm not going to say it. There, there's so like that's a, just another example of something like what would I need a topo map for? Your entire three acre piece of property has five feet of elevation change. That's actually why you need it. Right. Well, that and you know, land has an optical illusion based on where you're standing. Sure. So that's sure. that's that's what really gets people. You know, the other thing that you know, one of the reasons we use, and again, we don't want to get too far into the map thing, is that when I have my map, my map is covering ten to twenty square miles. Okay, well, I can look at it and I can see what what my elevation is because, of course, you know, there's always the whole, you know, the sea's going to rise and you got to be above 300, you know, feet above sea level so you can see where you are there. But you can see when you have a flood or a storm what roads you don't want to take. You know, what roads are going to flood. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's that's invaluable as well. There's a ton of like I said, we're gonna we're gonna stop there and move forward because, <laughs> because we could. Just, I'm sitting on my topo right now, looking at something, and ideas are piling out of my brain. But in in your stuff, you talk about a difference between, let's say, a soft skill and a hard skill for preppers, and actually soft preppers and hard preppers. What, what do you mean by that? That that's something my buddy came up with. We were just talking one day and. It, some some preppers take it a little offensively. A soft prepper is somebody who says, you know, yes, I've watched the show and I've listened to some podcasts and I want to be a prepper. And they go to Sam's and they buy a bunch of cases of food and cases of water and things of toilet paper and they put it in a Rubbermaid tote and they go, there, I'm a prepper. <laughs> no, that's called a soft prepper. A soft prepper just goes out and they just accumulate stuff that they never train with, never practice with. I mean, camping gear, whatever. They never play with it. Well, a hard pet prepper is somebody who gardens, uh, has cows, chickens, rabbits, whatever, actually does the stuff. You know, it's like, well, yeah, I live in this, I live in this, you know, on this two acres and yeah, that's it. I've got all my stuff in the garage. It's all locked up. There we go. I'm like, have you planted any trees? Can you have chickens? Can you have rabbits? You know, are you gardening? You know, what are you doing other than that? What training are you doing? Are you going to, you know, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy? Are you going to see the Patriot Nurse? I mean, other than just research, you have to do it. Just reading it and having it isn't enough. So that's the separation between a soft prepper and a hard prepper. Cool. So you've been doing what I've been doing, which is working on a piece of land. And when you do that, you start to realize all of these great ideas – are not bad ideas, but they all have this thing called a time suck and a money suck. Yes. And it starts to amaze you because, you know, we're all thinking, I want 100 acres. <laughs> uh-huh, sure you do. If it's wooded and you can shoot deer on it, maybe you too. But trust me, you do not want to run a 100-acre farm. So in your experience so far, when it comes to actually making use of the land for one person or a small family, how much? where do you get to the point where there's – the, the 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 ROI on the on the land value starts to decline. Like you, you you can have it and it just can sit there and that's fine. But if you want to actually do something with it, where where does that line get crossed? Um, I totally agree with the statement that you had made a while back about how you've got you've got a few acres and you know and you're maximizing it. I'm on ten acres, and I'll bet I'm not using two, and that's with chickens, rabbits, you know, metal buildings, barns, all that. You know, now, granted, I'm not close to the Metroplex, you know, thank God, 
Um, so my 10 acres with a house and a barn and a couple of shops uh, went off at about $68,000. Okay. And I'm out in the woods. So, you know, that's really nice. And, you know, there was a big down payment put down on it, and it'll be paid off. I've had it. We've been here a little almost three years, and it'll be paid off in three. So that's the last debt there is. So as far as the return of investment, you know, when you're making a really small house payment and every month you're throwing a tree or two and, um, you know, Bob Wells just loves me because I, you know, you did the interview on, you talked to him, you mentioned him yeah. on your page or on the uh, podcast. And I was like, I heard about him. I'm going to go down and see him. And I went down and I saw him and I bought a couple of things and I came home and I put him in the ground. And then I called him and said, Hey, Bob, can I interview you? He's like, well, okay, let's schedule it. I interviewed him the day your interview with Bob Wells came out. Okay. It was hilarious. Put on YouTube. Yeah. yeah he's, he's a good guy. We've got some cool stuff coming from him, too. We're going we're gonna to launch in September. It's kind of a sneak peek for everybody listening here today. We're going to launch what we're going to call Bob the Bob Wells Plan of the Week. So once a, once a week, we'll have a unique variety of something featured that, uh, that they offer. That should be kind of cool for people. That'll probably hurt your pocketbook, Joe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, Bob. Well, see now, Bob. Bob is usually so blowing and going that I usually end up dealing with Rob. I think it's his, yep. his little brother, and I love Rob to death. And Rob's like, okay. And I, I went in one day, and this is something I want everybody to do when it comes to buying trees and plants. And I think you're really going to like it. I happen to go to Bob Wells, so he's got his little catalog with his, you know, Bob Wells Nursery, and you open it up, and it's got, okay, here's berry trees, here's peach trees. Highlight the book with every tree you have, and then when you walk in, take the book in with you and go, okay, um, well, I'm opening my book right now. Okay, let's see. I've got, I went in and I said, hey, you know, Rob, I've got an early Richmond cherry. You know, what do I need to uh, cross-pollinate? And he's like, okay, we well, need this. Actually, I don't think it needed it. But what was it? I had a yellow delicious apple. And he goes, okay, well, then you're going to need a Jonathan and, you know, and, and, and a Jana Gold. I'm like, okay. So you can't just go to Walmart and Lowe's and Home Depot and buy your trees. You have to buy trees that cross-pollinate with the other trees. And people don't understand that. And I didn't really understand it until I started listening, you know, more to you on this stuff. Mm-hmm. So now everything I buy, I buy... I buy two to, to cross-pollinate it, like pears. I talked to them about pears. I'm like, yeah, I, I've got some Bartlett pears in the ground. And they're like, okay, for your area, the, for our area here, they work great, but they tend to get blight and they die. So Rob's like, here, get a, mo- a, a moon glow and a Warren pear, because one, they'll both cross-pollinate the Bartlett, but they'll also cross-pollinate each other. So even if I lose the Bartlett, I've still got pears. People don't understand cross-pollination when it comes to this stuff. Yeah, and I mean, to be a little bit fair, that a lot of these trees that they say need a cross-pollinator will produce something without a cross-pollinator, but they won't produce much. You know, and getting four pairs off a tree ain't really what you're doing it for. And and getting those those, those varieties that flower at the right time and make good cross-pollinators uh, is the difference between having a, a landscape tree with a couple pieces of fruit on it once in a while and actually having a productive system. Right. And, you know, and some of the stuff that, you know, again, if you do the, you know, the Bob, you know, the Bob Wells tree of the three of the week, uh, one of the ones he's got some of the things that I've never heard of that you mentioned, um, gooseberry. Mm-hmm. He's got, I'm, I'm like, hey, I heard about gooseberries like, yeah, they're over here. OK, they're like eight dollars. 
Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, my my jury's out on whether that's going to be um, practical in Texas yet. It's really. Uh, and if, if you had said, well, where's a great place to grow a gooseberry? I would tell you the eastern island of the eastern part of the island of England where it <laughs> rains a lot and is cool and misty. That's that's like gooseberry ground zero. So we are I am everything but that. And I think you're even less than that down where you're at because you're south of me. But I do have some in shady areas that are moister areas and they do seem to be doing OK. So, you know. I'm big on don't tell me what won't grow here because I'll probably get pissed off and try to prove I can grow it. Um, I was told you can't do sea berries here, that it's just too hot. I've got a bunch of them booming right now. Now, whether they'll yield or not, we'll see. But, you know, they're, it, it, they're certainly not being hurt by the heat, but they're in a mottled shade environment. I think it's I think that's part of what's cool about what we're doing with smaller pieces of land. You can afford to just throw a few plants out there and see if it works. And if it and you can put a couple in this environment, a couple in that micro niche and see where do they where do they survive. See, and that's that right there is exactly where we're getting into because my gooseberries are not doing that great. It says they want full sun, but they weren't talking about Texas sun. No. So, no no no. Yeah, so <laughs> I've got them on the set, on the side of a house, on the side of the house and they're doing okay, but I noticed that when I got them they were a lot brighter and more vibrant. So I'm like, "Okay, I think I'm going to end up putting them in a little place a little farther up under the canopy." Because I'm up under a lot of canopy. I'm what am I? I'm two hours east of you, almost due mm-hmm. east between twenty I twenty and I thirty. But I'm not afraid to fail when I plant something because it says full sun, but it doesn't mean here in Texas. So I have to plant stuff, and I'm playing with oh this isn't working, and here's why. Okay, I move this and I move that. Um, I grow basil out of my ears all day long because I keep it under the canopy. I probably got 40 basil plants out front. Um, I try. I started playing with the little microclimates with rosemary. Um, somebody gave me a rosemary, and I killed it right off the bat. And I'm like, I don't know why why it died. I gave it miracle Grow. miracle Grow <laughs> kills rosemary. It's a high, highly acidic plant. It doesn't like that. Yeah. So then I planted one up by the house, and I was like, eh, it was doing okay. And then I went and got another one that was even smaller than the second one I got. And I planted it at the base of a, of a power pole out in the middle of my yard, the worst possible environment. And I can't control that thing. It loves it. I've got another one down by my shop. It just, it gets good runoff off of the roof. It's in the full sun. It loves it. So, you know, you got to play with your different little microclimates and see what does and doesn't work. I mean, like I, you know, like I said, don't be afraid to fail. Um, when it comes to planting plants for me, I know that if it hits the fan, it can be anything. Well, if we have a, a small fire run through our area, I don't want to lose my entire crop. So all of my, uh, a lot of my herbs and my trees are spread out all over my property. One, so I'm playing with the funny different microclimates of, okay, this has got a little more shade. This has got this contour. The water's different, but I've got rosemary in eight different places all over my property. Um, I'm finding, uh, I've got persimmons all over the property, um, uh, hickory nuts, pecan, uh, peaches. My kids have populated this entire property with peaches because they'll <laughs> run around. Oh, can I have a peach? Yeah, here, eat a peach. And they'll eat a peach or, or nectarine and they'll run off and they'll get about halfway done with it or finish it and just throw the seed down. Well, I found like eight peach trees out behind the house, you know, earlier this spring or last fall. 
So. Yeah, that's that's one of the one of the trees that will produce well from seed and actually produce pretty much true to type or at least good quality. Um, so you'll probably get some pretty good peaches out of that. That's that's another way to cut costs too, man. If you can if you can grow trees from seed, not only do you get a really healthy, aggressive rootstock, you know you get a pretty resilient uh, tree as well. I mean, anything that grows from seed is generally more resilient than something you've grafted. Yeah, it just it, it cracked me up when all of a sudden I'm like, what is this? I'm getting ready to cut down. I'm like, wait a minute, that's a peach tree. It's a peach tree. You know? Yeah. And I, you know, out, out in the front end of the property, I'll run around out there with the tractor and I'll be brush hogging and just cleaning up brush because again, I'm pretty I'm pretty thick wooded. And all of a sudden, I noticed on this tree that there was a fruit, and I looked at it. I'm like, that's a persimmon. And this is like a month ago. Mm. And I thought, saw a persimmon, and maybe like, oh, persimmons are tart and this and that. I'm like, yeah, you can make jelly or wine or whatever. But the deer love them. Sure. So then all sure. of a sudden, as I'm driving around on the tractor, brush hogging, I'm finding more persimmon trees. So then I just start running around with orange flagging tape, tagging them so I don't run over them. Sure. Because to me, a piece of property, I'm trying to make a piece of property very balanced so that even if I don't need it, my li- my livestock can eat it. Well, and then think back to our beginning of this conversation about how one thing leads to another with skill development. So now you've got all these native persimmons growing everywhere. And, yes, they grow these smaller uh, persimmons that have limited table value, right? But, they're, I mean, they're fine for making jellies and stuff like that. But it's a persimmon. So you could go out and get something like a, a, a one uh, euro or fuyu persimmon and grow that tree. And then you could just take scion wood off of that tree and graft onto your native persimmons. So you could create one persimmon tree with three varieties or four varieties of persimmon on it, and plus you're getting the cross-pollination with the native tree, and now you're sitting on a native root stock that was so strong that a persimmon that fell there and avoided the deer or got crapped out in some animal waste was able to grow with no help from anybody at all. That's a pretty healthy root stock. Right. That's a pretty tough tree. So now you can just take one skill grafting, which you can learn in a day, and harness all that rootstock with overgrafting. Right. And when you start down that path, that's what just be. And I think people stand back and go, "How do you know all this crap?" Well, they they seem to take it like you must have like pulled up to a computer and shoved a USB cable in your ear and like the Matrix and all that information happened in a day. It's developed over months and weeks and years and decades even, and None of it's that hard. So as you, once you learn that, then it's about now how many ways can I apply that new knowledge? Well, and that's exactly it. I mean, you keep you, you keep saying the same thing that it, that it keeps, and, and it's true. Is is that everything you do branches out into something else? Because you mentioned grafting. Well, after I got over to Bob Wells and I saw that he had this one tree that you know spits out five different peaches and fruits all at one time off one tree, I'm like, now. The tree's a little more expensive, but you're getting five different fruits out of it. Well, for somebody with a small piece of property that doesn't have the room for five trees, put one of these in and you're going to get five fruit or two. So that was really cool. Well, because I got, I saw that and I was so impressed with the grafted trees, I went on Amazon and created myself a grafting kit. And now I'm just waiting for the time of year and I'm still doing research on it. How am I going to graft? I want to learn how to graft trees. Yeah, and you're talking about the Dave Wilson stuff with those multigraphs, and I kind of always looked at it as a novelty, and when I went out there myself and I looked at that that product and I looked at the quality 
of, of that product and, and, and the way that work was done and, and the unique varieties that were available, I was really, really impressed with it. I mean, I don't know about you, but I was like, this is one of the more impressive um, uh, things that I've seen done from a horticultural standpoint. That yeah, Bob Wells Nursery there in Lindale, you know, and I feel sad for everybody that don't live around here that they don't have. But you may be able to find somebody like that. His entire setup is is just phenomenal. Um, I was wanting, uh, I was looking at, hey, you know what? I really like olives. I'd like to do olives, and he has an olive tree there that'll grow here. A BQA, the Spanish black olive. Yeah. Okay. The problem is apparently there's a lot of work that goes into making an olive. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> that was like, well, no, no, I'm, you know, I'm. I'm efficiently lazy. I would rather do as little as possible and get the most out of it. So then I looked at it. I'm like, well, I don't really like uh, avocados, but you know how, how how much that would be worth to be the guy on the block with two avocado trees? Sure. And he has avocados that grow here. So I'm like, okay, that's my thing. You know, I'm going to be the guy, and I've got this great little vegetable stand down the road. It's, they're two school bus drivers, and during the summer, they run this massive garden and they sell the stuff, and they've got a little pot there that you put your money in. It's all honor system. I'm going to be the guy taking them avocados. I mean, as it is right now, I take them eggs, and they sell eggs. I don't have to have people coming to my front door asking for eggs. I take them over there. They take a cut. I'm fine. It pays for my, it pays for my chicken feed. And and we've got um, some of the uh, those those avocados here. I think we've got Brazos Bell and Mexicola. And uh, we'll see how they do. I, I should not have planted them in the spring. I should have waited to get them established in the fall, which is a, really a better time to plant trees because the grasshoppers went, I don't know, I guess they like uh, avocado leaf because they hit them harder than anything else on the property. So uh, I'll be up in the air to whether they survive or not. It's hard to lose an expensive tree like that, but uh, you don't learn it unless you try it. Right. And then, well, then, and then again, here we go with stacking. Okay, you you do your chickens different than I do. You you chicken tractor them, right? Well, it depends. I mean, I I I tractor chickens when they're young. Uh, if they're broilers, I paddock shift them to finish them. Uh, and my main laying flock, they're tractored when they're being brooded, basically, and and then they're pretty much in what I call a confined free range. So I have an acre of of land that they technically free range on, but that's not really free range because. Well, they can't poop on my car because they're over on that acre. Right. So I adapt how I manage my chickens based on what I'm doing with what chicken. See, and what I do is I'm you're really in depth with which which chickens you get. I just went to tractor supply or the feed store and I got some reds. And then next time next time I went, the next year I got some rocks and I got a couple of different and they're all good hardy chickens, good layers, decent meat birds. And what I do, we got we went we started again stacking is we started incubating our eggs mm -hmm. and we incubated them without the turner. Okay. We got out of like 40 eggs. We got like four chickens. Well, the next time out we got the turner. Yeah. Okay. Our production went through the roof. Sure. 75, 85%, you know, uh, hatch rate. And then of course you got a couple that aren't going to make it out of that. And now when spring starts, we incubate probably whatever fits in the incubator, 38, 40 eggs, a month, wow! All summer long, and we stop usually about uh, September as it starts getting cool. And what we'll do is, as the chickens come out of the incubator, they go into the chicken coop. I've got a chicken house 
and then there's a chicken yard outside of that, and that's fenced in. They go into the chicken house in their own little covered cage to keep the bigger chickens from picking on them. Sure. And they sit there for the month. And then when the next batch is coming out to go in there, those guys come out of the chicken box deal, and they go out into the chicken yard, and then get in and out of the chicken house in the chicken yard. And by that time, the bigger chickens have gotten used to them and don't really pick on them. Now they'll stay in that chicken yard, which the chicken yard is probably 12 by 20, and it's fenced in with a, you know, with a fenced-in top so the hawks and owls can't get them. Now they'll stay in there for a month. So by the time they actually get released onto the property, you know, they're two months old. And now I've got, right now I've got probably 40 or 50 chickens running around the entire property, but they run everywhere. So I've got chickens running around. Uh, I've released rabbits. My sister brought me some lionhead rabbits that's just like the size of a quail. They're just, it's just a really little stupid rabbit. But I threw it on the property. I got tired of feeding them. They weren't going to become meat animals. So I released them. <laughs> and they got huge because now they're eating naturally. So I've got chickens and rabbits running around my entire property. I have no grasshoppers. Um, I, don't, I, can't, I rarely see a bug jumping anywhere because they eat them. They're fertilizing my entire property. Um, and then I, I turned around and I went on Amazon. And I went because you had said use echinacea. Purple coneflower. Mm-hmm. So I throw that. I threw that up on the on the up uphill side of my property. I started seeding up there, and every year I'll seed down a little farther because I want to get that iron induced into the soil. Because as the iron gets into the soil, like you had said, everything that eats eats anything that's coming out of the soil is going to have more iron. So my fruit's going to have more iron. My meat's going to have more iron. I'm just stacking everything on top of each other. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it's it, it really it all does start to get together. But I want to back up and I want to ask you a question. What do you do with all those birds? Are you growing uh, a lot of those birds for meat now? No, we we've done some. A lot of people say, you know, well, do you eat chicken? I'm like, no, I don't eat chicken. I eat roosters. Okay. Because <laughs> I don't care. I don't care how you hatch the eggs. I mean, you always get you know half or more roosters. So we eat a lot of roosters. Um, the chickens. Pretty much, we, we have enough attrition due to wildlife, due to the predators, that once a chicken starts getting older and we're like, okay, yeah, it's about time to call some of those out, you know, after like two years or so, they disappear. We've had a couple. I really don't like to call out my chickens. I really, I get enough roosters to where I can do the roost. Mm-hmm. Because one year I had a chicken and I'd had too many roosters at one time and they really just really tore this chicken up. And she looked really old and really haggard. And I'm like, all right, I'm going to go ahead and take her out. We'll make chicken soup or something out of her. And when I was cleaning her, I found five eggs inside of her in different stages. So that kind of... Yeah, that's not uncommon at all to, to find a bird with eggs. It's, it's, it's still the case. You can take a bird that's three and a half years old. So that bird at three and a half ha- has molted... Uh, three times at that point, and it's not going to be in high production, but you still might find a lot of uh, eggs in, uh, let's say, uh, rounds in the magazine. Right. Because right, they're still going to lay. They're just going to lay with a lower frequency. Right. But, you know, so that's, I don't really mess with my chickens too much. I do more with my roosters. I got you. Uh, but they're, to me, they're, they're, they eradicate my pests. Um, they, they fertilize my entire property. I get enough roosters. I mean, I get well over a dozen eggs a day. Because everybody's like, well, how do you only get a dozen eggs if you've got 50 chickens? They're all in different stages. Sure. I've got huge birds, and i got, you know, little birds, and then I've got, you know, 
cotton balls with feet. So your your solution to the predator issue is just make a lot of chickens, right? And your I guess then your solution to the feed bill for that many birds versus that many eggs is make them earn their living, right? Well, that's exactly it. Everybody's like, man, all them birds. How do you afford that? It's easy. I feed them once a day. Mostly, I'm going towards feeding the babies, the small chicks that are in that are in the chicken yard. And if the big chickens get in there and eat, that's fine. But the rest of them, they earn their keep. Yeah, I mean, well, and here's another one that uh, that we do is we get people who will come over. We'll be having a barbecue, and they're like, you know, they go to scrape their, their plate off in the trash. Don't do that. Don't do that. Put it in the bowl. We've got a place we take it out in the yard, and we dump it in the yard, and the chickens just tear it up. I mean, just table scraps. You know, you know, chickens love eating eggs. You know, the kids are like, I'm done with my scrambled egg. I'm like, all right, give it to the chickens. So, I mean, everything gets everything gets as recycled as I can get it. Uh, keeps my feed bill down. They they, they earn their keep. Um, an idea for some people who are wanting to do birds and are worried about predators is guineas. Um, I got four guineas the first year we were here, and uh, they're a big bird. Uh, they're dark meat. Uh, we haven't we haven't butchered one yet because we can't catch them. But they are. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they're they they can be they're aggressive against the chickens a little bit. Yeah, they can be mean to chickens, definitely. But the thing is, is they are a biological security system. Nothing comes on the property without them freaking out and going after it. Um, they chase the dog off the property. Um, I'm out in the back room one day just getting ready to go to work, and they're losing their mind. And I go out the back door, and they're chasing a fox through the yard. Um, I've had the I've had I've heard the guineas go freaking out, and I step out the back door. And they had a, uh, they've had both a bobcat and a coyote pinned in the woods, and the guineas were between the chickens and the coyote and the bobcat. And that's a, yeah, that's a, they're definitely aggressive. We've we've had the same experience using geese for that. That um, I'm not saying they can fight it off, but they'll damn sure try. And nothing gets on the property that's unusual without the alarm just going crazy. Right, right. What I'm doing with guineas, you're doing with geese, and you're right. But the thing is, is when you're, you know, apparently the coyotes and the bobcats, it's not that they can't take that animal. It's 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 the group function. Well, they don't want – a predator like that lives constantly in fear of other predators, right? So, like, a coyote is as vicious as a coyote is when it's killing. It is one of the most skittish creatures on on planet earth an example of this is i had a game camera set up at my place in arkansas and the only creature i ever saw get on a game camera look at the game camera at night and react to the infrared uh speaking of alarms uh react to the ir and run was a coyote right so i've actually seen coyotes come onto a game camera you can tell that they're just like something ain't right. Look straight at the camera and vanish. Yep. So when like, that coyote's thinking about coming out to, to grab a chicken dinner, and there's you know five or fourteen or however many guineas you have screaming and yelling, it's like if I come out, everybody knows I'm here. So it, it makes them a lot more apprehensive. They're just not comfortable being out in the open when somebody's going coyote, 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 which is what that guinea's doing. Yep. It's it's pissed off, and it's it's over there, and, it, and it, you know, and on some levels, a guinea wants you to do something about it, right? But the coyote doesn't know that; he just knows his cover's blown. Oh yeah, well, I mean, and they'll do the same thing with hawks. Mm-hmm. They'll be freaking out, and I walk out, and I don't see anything, and all of a sudden, I hear it. I'm like, there it is. 
You know, all I got to do is walk around and the hawk will take off. But yeah, so the guineas are, you know, they're by security system. Uh, they're kind of cool, uh, but they keep, they keep my, you know, all the predators off the property. So that's kind of. Do you have roadrunners down there? Yes. We have them here, and I have no idea why, but my roosters despise roadrunners. The roadrunner poses no threat. No, but I have a roadrunner around, man. More than anything else, the roosters go bonkers. Yeah. Over the roadrunner, I've seen them try to kill. They can't catch them. Yeah. But I mean, I had upgrade one at my my big rooster upgrade. He was he wanted to kill them. I mean, you could tell that like there was no qualms. That bird puffed and just hauled butt. After that roadrunner, the roadrunner just hopped over the fence and looked at him like he was crazy. Yeah. But they hate roadrunners. Yep. I guess they look too much like a competing chicken. I don't know. Yeah, that's what I would think. They look like a rooster. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the funny ones here is is that um, because I've got I've got rabbits in cages that are my my big Californias, my big breeders for you know for meat, and I've got those. Well, the little ones, like I said, that my sister had brought that I just dumped out in the yard. I'm like, I'm not feeding you guys anymore. Well, they hung out. And I think I've, uh, the only ones I lost were the, were the white ones and the light colored ones. I've got a bunch of black ones in the yard. Well, now my cottontails in the area are coming up in the yard. But when I feed the, my chickens and my rabbits hang out together. When I go and I drop some feed on the ground or I throw something out for the chickens to eat, the rabbits will come up, hey, what do you guys got? So they hang out together, which is kind of cool. You know, when kids, These are the rabbits you let go you're talking yeah. about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then I've got cottontails. You can see the cottontails where normally they're, they're real skittish, but... Now they just stand out in the distance and wait and like, hey, my girlfriend will be out later on. Well, they got another rabbit. It's like a de- it's like a living decoy. Yeah. <laughs> and people are like, well, why do you do that with the rabbits? Well, those are my little fertilizer factories. And, you know, when, when it hits the fan, I walk out the front door, pop one in the head with a 22, we got dinner. Sure. So it's, it's real easy. How do your big rabbits do with this heat? Um, the first year we moved here, um, I know it was the year before we moved here. They didn't do well in the heat at all. Um, I lost about half of them. And then when we moved here, everybody was like, oh, put the rabbit cages over here. Put the rabbit cages over there. I'm like, no, put them up under the canopy. Sure. And that, that's it. I just put them under the canopy. And if I think that it's really getting, you know, when we have those extremely hot weeks, I'll just go out and put a sprinkler out there on top of the rabbit hutch and they've all got metal roofs and I'll turn it on for five minutes and let everything in the area get moist and drippy and then I shut it off. I haven't haven't lost a rabbit due to heat since we've been here. A thing we did with our broilers when we got a real bad hot spell last year, we had about 50 broilers out there. In in all my deep freezers, but specifically in one of them, I keep a whole bunch of one-gallon jugs of water frozen and we would just grab like four of those and throw them out with the broiler chickens, and they'd have their ass pinned up against them, man. They, it was just like they, it didn't take them a day to figure out how that worked. And, you know, that, that would last about a half a day. And we'd go out in the middle of the day and grab them, throw them in the deep freezer, and pull four new ones out. And, and that really helped them stay cool. So there's a variety of ways you can do that. We also we finished them in an area, like it was an old goat, goat pen, and I planted it full of buckwheat and uh, cowpea and a bunch of other stuff. And we, gave them, we put them there for their last week to finish them and put some fat on them. And in there, it was on a fence row near water. So we did what you did. We just set up a real cheap, like $9 mist. You know, you get like a mister with the misters built into it. It's about 10 feet long. Yeah. We just tie-wrapped it to the fence with the misters pointed in. And at the hottest part of the day, we just turned the water on low pressure, just enough to blow the misters, let it run for a couple hours at the hottest part of the day, and they'd all sit up under there just chilling out and... 
I mean, that was about as low tech as it gets. And so I think you can adapt to these different climates, even with livestock and things like that. And I don't know about your experience, but my experience is it's easier to produce an egg or a, a stew chicken or a roaster or a rabbit or a quail than it is a tomato or a pepper or a cucumber. Oh, yeah, to me. They, they're just easy. And the, the ROI, right? So a cucumber is good to eat, but let's be honest. There ain't a lot of calories in it, and it, it only has so much nutritive value. A chicken, a chicken has vitamins, minerals, nutrients, protein, fat. I mean, it, it's got everything a person needs to survive, and it has a myriad of uses, so it's not just the chicken. We can then make a bone stock, and that's a great source of minerals. And I mean, I don't know about you, but I'll get two, three meals out of most. You know, most of the chickens are big enough to make it worth plucking them. I'll get two or three meals out of it. I, I, do, I do a lot of my coals, where these like some of these smaller breeds that I have for eggs. The roosters just, if you wait until he's big enough to pluck, you got too much feeding him. You really do. And if you when you take him when he's young. You can you bleed them out, you you cut open the skin on the breast, you pull it open, you cut the two breast cutlets out, you pop the legs out, take the legs and the thighs, and in two and a half minutes you're done. And 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 those birds, you know, you get a meal out of. But the bigger birds, you know, I get two three meals because we'll do we'll roast it or something or grill it, and and we take the leftovers and and pull a bunch off and make a salad, and then you take what's left of that and boil it and make soup. Yeah. Or enchiladas or tamales or something. And and as you're as you're doing your different things, like people, I know a lot of people that oh I have rabbits and I have chickens. I'm like really, have you ever have you ever plucked a chicken? Well no, but we're going to if if it hits the fan. I'm like okay, yeah you're not ready. So we yes. we plucked them once, and it was it was a butt whipping. I mean you know because well we also had a turkey and oh yeah I got the turkey was we, we have had turkeys. I'm not doing it again. Because the turkey we got, he got aggressive late. We we let him go too long, and he went dressed out at 35 pounds. Wow. He was massive. But plucking him, and we, got, we had to heat the water and all this other stuff and do all that, and then I got thinking about it, and I'm like, that's time and resources when it hits the fan I don't want to have to deal with. And I heard somebody say something about skinning them. So I went over to, you know, our favorite YouTube, and I watched a couple videos on it. And we started skinning them. I mean, we do lose the fat in it, but it's quicker and it's more efficient. And to me, it's no harder than skinning a squirrel or a rabbit. Oh, it's easier. Yeah. It's it's definitely easier than skinning it. Squirrels are a little bit tough to skin anyway. Depends on if you want if you want the back legs and the back strap. It, you can do a squirrel real quick. But if you want to get that front side and all, there's a little bit of work to it. But a chicken, I mean, what I'll do with a chicken when I skin a chicken, I just talked about this on the show yesterday, but I'll just kind of spread the skin where I can get the knife against that breastbone because you know you're cutting against bone there, and you're not going to get into the meat before you want to, you cut a little hole there, stick your fingers in, and yank. Yep. And, and from that point, it gets really, really easy. And as far as the, the, the fat and the skin, you know, I'll usually do a broiler cycle a, a year, and I'm kind of tinkering around with, is it worth buying a plucker for that and all? But I'm okay with plucking that that cycle of purpose-grown, large-frame, full-on meat birds, but I'm not going to roast every single one of those chickens. Some are going to get parted out and grilled and all. And you can make all the chicken stock you want from backs and wingtips and stuff like that. And then you can reserve that chicken stock. And if you happen to want to make soup or something with stock when, you're, when you've got that skinned chicken, well, your stock's sitting there in a jar or in a frozen bag. Right. And you're right. You are not going to be spending time firing up a scalder and spending 20 minutes to pluck one chicken 
in, in a shit hit the fan scenario, or just in a personal shit hit the fan where you're just getting by because of some kind of setback in life. If you're trying to live off your little piece of land, you don't have time for that. Well, and you damn sure don't have the time to be waiting for water to come up to 145 degrees. Right. Well, you're, you know, you go back to, okay, we're going to create a fire. I can strike and burn wood. Okay. Now you're creating a signature if you're trying to keep yeah. quiet about it. And then you're, you're talking about one, maybe two birds. Okay. Again, it's not worth the time. That's, you're doing that's the big thing for me. If I'm going to do 50 birds, I'll rent a plucker, I'll rent a scalder, and we'll do it up. If I'm going to do two birds, I don't have time. Yep. I just don't have time for it. And how much easier is it really? Because I just talked about this in yesterday's show. Now you're telling me you do it. How much easier would you say if, if plucking a chicken in a scale of 1 to 10 is a is a 7, what would you rate skinning a chicken? Oh, skinning is much easier. It's like a 2. Yeah. Yeah, I'd rather I'd rather skin them any day. Fact, it's just it's fast, too. Yeah. Oh, and what's funny here is, of course, because to me, being a prepper to me isn't a hobby. It's a lifestyle that we'll get we'll get we have get together almost every Saturday during the summer and people are all right, what are we doing? What are we doing? We're bringing over and of course the ladies typically come later, but the guys and the kids come early because they're like, Okay, what are we gonna learn? Well today we're barbecuing chicken. Guess what we're doing? We're learning we're learning everybody how to skin a chicken. Yeah. So we'll have I'll have five chickens. I've got those little uh it's almost like a closet hanger where you'd hang a closet pole. I've got those screwed into a tree all the way around this tree as chicken cleaning stations. So everybody gets to have a chicken and they get to clean it and they get to learn how to do it. I mean, it, it becomes, you know, kind of fun. It's like Boy Scouts every weekend. Yeah, I, I, I stack, I function stacked really good last year. I raised about 60 broilers and then I ran a class on how to clean chickens. I had 25 students, and I said every student was going to clean two chickens and get to take one home. Yeah, I remember that. So I got I got my, all my other chickens cleaned and plucked for me. Yep. <laughs> that was I don't know if I can get away with that every year, but that was a very uh, very good function stacking uh, agreement that that we had there. And everybody that wanted one anyway got a, a fresh clean chicken, and they learned how to do it. Um, I also trained everybody on how to how to how to kill them. I guess I'd say my way. I don't know if it's my way or not. I've never seen anybody else doing it, but I just string them up with a couple pieces of paracord, and instead of a killing cone, I just hang them so that when they go into a bucket, their head's a couple inches above the bottom of the bucket. I put wood chips in the bottom of that bucket, and you 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 cut the neck and you set them into the bucket, and the bucket acts as a cone if they flip much, and. When I did that, all the students were like, well, why don't you have killing cones for this? And I had 25 students there, and I said, everybody that owns killing cones, stick up your hand. Two hands went up. <laughs> I said, everybody that owns a five-gallon bucket, stick up your hand. <laughs> Every single hand went up. Right. And it, I, I, after doing it, unless you're killing 100 birds a day or something, I, I, I can't tell you that there's any advantage to having cones. I, I think if, you, like if you're doing a Salatin-style thing and you see what he does where they have like the rotator – Right, and they got the big thing to catch all the blood, and the guys just stand there, one after the other after the other. And you're in production for 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 profit. I think that there's an efficiency there. I think if you're putting down four or five chickens, it's just it, it's overkill. You don't need it. Well, and something else that I think that you're forgetting that you're doing, and I'm sure this is what you're doing is, what are you doing with the wood chips when you're done? Oh, that's that's compost. Right. Well, or or, or it goes just at the base, you know, just wood chips at the base of your your plants, so mm -hmm. that blood back into the soil. That's that's twelve parts nitrogen right there. Yep. I mean that's that's some of the best fertilizer you can get your hands on. We compost everything. If I have if I kill one or two chickens, and I don't have 
about if I'm not about to or don't have a, a big hot pile of compost going, to be honest, I'll take the waste. I throw it in a garbage bag, tie a knot in it, and throw it in the freezer. And on trash day, I throw it in a trash bin. If if we're getting ready to compost, I put the whole carcass right in the center of that hot compost pile. And by the third turn, there ain't nothing left of it. Yeah. And that whole thing's gone to the land. But it's, I don't always have a hot pile going. Like everybody, I have time limitations. On that, as we get toward the end here, you have, uh, you say that you have a way to get five hours a day, five days a week of prepper classroom time, even for somebody with a job. How do you do that? Well, um, I'm on the road quite a bit. Uh, I can be on the road anywhere from an hour to five hours one way. Uh, and I get to my job and I'm there an hour, maybe two, and then I drive home. Um, okay. I have three podcasts that I listen to. Yours is my daily. Uh, Bob Main does Today's Survival Show. He's once a week. Uh, Rob Hannis out of uh, Arizona does Preparedness Podcast. He's typically once a week. And if I've got a five-hour drive, well, there's three hours worth of podcast right there. And then I turn around and I jump into my audiobooks. You know, every book that I own, I also own the audio copy. So I don't listen to the radio because it's it's somebody's take on, on the news or it's it's about the Kardashians. I listen <laughs> to podcasts and I, and I listen to audio books my entire drive every single day. I mean, I don't even get in the car to go to Walmart 20 minutes away without listening to a podcast or an audio book. I'm just I'm, – I'm an information sponge. And I've got to see what's next, what I've missed. Um, read a book a second time or listen to the audio book a second time. You'll catch something you missed the first time. So, yeah, I mean, I'm right now I think I got it. I wasn't traveling as much there for a little while, so I'm, I got behind on some of your podcasts. And then I picked up an audio book, and I've been listening to it. So now I'm trying to get caught back up with my Spearco podcast. But, yeah, that's it. I mean, I this is why I think I'm so energetic in this is that all I do is listen to podcasts all day, you know, five days a week. And then through my weekend, I put it all into practice. You know, I've got a notepad in the truck. And every time I stop, I'm like, all right, what did Jack say here? I need to get echinacea. You know, I need to, I need to grow this or I need to try that or I need to get gooseberry or what, you know, whatever it is. It all gets jotted down or thrown onto a digital recorder so I can remember it. And then I just run right back into it. Yeah, and I think that, like, so when you do that, you're not ever going to do everything, but you get to cherry-pick the things out that you want to do. And then the other thing that happens is the possibilities all go in your head, and and three years later, you're coming up with a solution for something, and there's 15 different pieces of it that came at 15 different times, and you don't even really remember it happening, but the mind has been switched on to start this troubleshooting assemblage function stacking process. Right. It is a continuously educational process, and I appreciate that you're listening to my show as much as you can, and, and I think every, I think everybody here should. You should all listen all the time, but <laughs> the, the truth is you can do that with lots of things, not just prepping. With anything that you want to know, there's tons of content available, and the average person that says they don't have time to learn stuff is probably shoving 20 hours or more of bullshit into their brain a week. Yeah, Kardashians uh, you know, or whatever. Yeah, whether it's the Kardashians or whether it's, I don't even care anymore with, let's, there are some radio personalities that I think, 
I think they're still part of the, the system, and they're just one side of the dichotomy, but they bring a lot of valuable information. I'll, I'll, I'll credit them with that. Glenn Beck springs to mind. It, for someone that's definitely on one side of the dichotomy, but does have some really valuable information. But if you listen to his radio show for an hour, you might get, you might get 35 minutes of his show, right, in an hour, yeah. because of the commercials. And, and of that 35 minutes, 50% of it will be the same thing he's already said four times. Right. So you might get 10 minutes out of an hour of really solid meat, where most podcasters, if we pull that, if we're not bringing ton- dense information, you just put somebody else on. Because you've got to want to listen to a podcast. You don't accidentally tune in to TSP or any of these other shows while you're driving down the road looking for something. You have to want to do it. So if you want an audience to keep coming back, you got to bring tons of information. Well, yeah, I mean, it's like I'm, I'll turn on, you know, here, here goes my Jack Spirit. I'm going to turn it on to And then it was like, oh, this one's about fishing. I'm like, okay, I'm not interested in that right now. Sure. You know, I can get back to that, and I'll come to that. And then all of a sudden, you know, I'll, 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 I also went – with all of these podcasts, um, when I got to where I'd listen to them all and I'd have, you know, I'd listen to all the years that, you know, I'd, I'd subscribe to and then all of the other ones, I went back in history and I started from, you know, early episodes, you know, where you guys are running around in the old cars and sure. and I started listening to those and those are just as entertaining and you pull just as much out of it. Um, one of the funny ones I got I was on your forum. I, I popped on there to ask a question. Stephen Harris had, had talked about the Balfang radios. And he was saying something, and he, I guess because I was driving and I was distracted, um, I caught something on there about how you could get the, uh, the Air Guard channel uh, on your Balfang radio. Well, I got on, <laughs> I got onto the uh, onto your forum, and I asked, I'm like, I can't get my radio to do it. You know, Stephen Harris had said that you know you could do that. Does anybody know how to do it? Oh my God, Stephen Harris lit me up. <laughs> I never said that. Oh my God, he went off. It was. He's talking about a different radio. He he gets over the top at times. I've pinned his ears back a time or two for stuff like that. And it's like, dude, not everybody's sitting down listening to every podcast with a notepad, taking notes like it's a class. People are driving or or working out in a gym, and sometimes there's a a wire crossed. A, you know, you said this and you said this, and they were two different worlds but they get merged together right. you know and that's what it was but it was hilarious because it 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 was i didn't i didn't take offense to it i i was like oh okay my bad but i thought mm-hmm. it was hilarious because it was so Stephen harris mm-hmm. and i'm like you know i just you almost feel proud of like hey i just got beat up by Stephen. i got yelled at by steve <laughs> so but and but he's got some great information you know yeah, if, you, if you can get past his crust because i now give a, a communications class on pretty much military communications and radio procedures, but I use the Balfang radios as my base. You know, we took his Motorola's, the little Motorola radios that he recommends. I picked up six of those. We keep them constantly charged. Our property's three acres. Um, we've tested them out to about a mile down the road with decent reception at a mile. So they definitely have no problem with every bit of our property. And you might think, well, what the hell do you need a radio for on three acres? Let me tell you something. When you have 32 students and six instructors and staff, and you're trying to get a bunch of shit done for everybody, it really helps. And so we've adopted those because I don't have to train somebody to use it. When they show up, I go, our channel for this event's 18. Here. (laughs) 
If it if it gets low on power, go stick it in there and get a new one. Right. And keep it on you at all times or you're fired. Right. <laughs> and and then we you know, it's not well where's where's Mike or where's Nick or you know, it's hey Nick where you at? And that's been an immense, just for the events alone, that's been an immense time saver. And the last event we did, we planted about 300 trees. I don't think we could have done it without radios because I had everything staged and stuff going in everywhere. And I was calling, I'm like, I had multiple instructors. Each instructor had about 10 students. And I'd say, who's got a, you know, a, a rolly cherry in their design? And I'd have, th- you know, three instructors. I said, well, I got three of them that say they need one. I got three of them right here. Each of you send a student, and I'll, I've got them now. And, and, and that type of, so we always think with communications that we need these long-distance ham radios and stuff like that. There's a million reasons to be able to just communicate over a few hundred yards. Right. Yeah, I mean, for me, I mean, I'm typically the one doing pretty much everything out here on the property uh, by myself. I mean, like you had Josiah, which had to have been awesome. Um, but I'll be on the tractor and I'll be out, you know, mowing or moving dirt and I'll just jump on the radio and my son's in the house. I'm like, boy, bring me a, bring me a bottle of water or grab me a beer. I'm winding down, you know, and, and he just thinks it's cool because dad's playing with him on the walkie talkies. Sure. You know, he, man, he'll come running out there, you know, boy, where's your shoes at? I don't need shoes. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, and, and so yeah, communication radios, it's, I mean, the class I give, like I said, is more of a military style class. Yeah. And then again, it gets into the into the maps and the grids and how to read a map and it, it everything throws into everything else. But the Stephen Harris thing was funny. And but just to let Stephen know, yeah, I I think I've got eight eight different varieties of the Baofeng radios. So they're a really that's, good radio. That's really cool, man. And I like you involved involving your kid that way. I got to tell a real quick story here because I always pick on teacup kids, and I'll tell you they're not all teacup kids. You talked about not needing shoes. When we first moved to Arkansas, one day I'm sitting out on my deck that we had just finished building, and the boy from up the road come running down like an Indian with a with a bow with an arrow knocked, holding it in his left hand, running down the road. The road's about a 40-degree angle. It's pretty steep, and it's gravel. And he's running down because their friend's coming, and we had a gate that locked the whole mountain off from about our, our, our house up. He came running down that road with a bow and arrow with not a shoe on, on on a gravel road at at a speed I probably couldn't run at with shoes on, opened the gate, waited for the guy, closed the gate, locked it, and ran back up the hill. <laughs> and I said, and he, I think he was about nine years old at the time. And I said, well, that boy is not a teacup. There is hope for us with today, tomorrow's youth, definitely. Yeah, yeah definitely. You know? <laughs> and I'm thinking I wouldn't have done that when I was nine years. And I, I thought I was a tough kid, but I mean, I'm not running on gravel and bare feet. I'm not Cody Lundin, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> and I think my wife would probably be upset with me if my feet looked that bad. Yeah. My my, <laughs> yeah, my son here a little while ago, he was outside, and they, they were playing in the water or something. I told him, you're not coming in the house if you're dirty. Well, we've got a, what is it, a 100-gallon Rubbermaid water trough. Okay. catches water coming off the roof through the, through the rain gutter. So a little while later, I hear him walking through the house, and he's dripping water all over. Soaking wet. <laughs> like, what the hell are you doing? He goes, I'm not dirty. He did sweat. No, he jumped in the water trough to rinse the dirt off. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, my God, you've got to be so specific. But okay. Yeah, 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 I can't. Yeah. We might not do that again in the future, but I can't fault you for it this time yeah. through. And what's funny is, is, you know, and I'm like, you know, 
well, you know there's frogs in there, right? He goes, yeah. He goes, one of the polywogs was stuck to my chest, and I just threw it back in the water. <laughs> like, All right, you're good. You're a boy. Yeah, yeah. So uh, we're kind of wrapped up here at this point. We're past an hour. Um, you guys do have a Northeast Texas Preppers Facebook page, right? Right. Um, everything we do, we don't do. We don't do for profit. We don't charge for anything. Um, whenever we have to travel a little bit, people will give us donations just kind of to cover gas and this and that. But really, we're just trying to spread the word and, and help people learn stuff. All this information is out there. We are just one of the conduits where we gather it all up, process it, package it, and hand it back out. We didn't come up with any of this. You know, this is just through trial and error. So, yeah, we've got the uh, Northeast Texas Preppers on Facebook. Um, when we do events, we hand out cards that are that, – that's all they are to the Facebook page. I get people that try to friend me to my personal page, and I'm like, no – no, that's not. That's my personal page. You know, go to the prepper page. But that's all we're doing is just trying to get as many people trained and ready because that's one less unprepared person we're not going to have to deal with later. Yeah, absolutely, man. So, and, and folks can hook up with you there. Are there any other way that, that people could hook up with you? Uh, well, Northeast Texas Preppers is the main way. We've got an email. It's basically just Northeast Texas Preppers at yahoo.com. Um, uh, I was like doing this interview you know, people uh, get through me through like your show or stuff like that here. I also do quite a few uh, guests, not, not I guess they're guest hosts or I do interviews for Bob Main over at uh, today's survival show. I help him out. He's dealing with some, uh, some illness issues in his family. So I do quite a few interviews there, but the prepper page is really the best way. Um, it's an open page. People can just jump on there and go, Hey, I saw this. I think this is cool. What do you think? Or have you used this? And then everybody in the network all over the country will just start answering and jumping in. Um, it is theoretically based out of Northeast Texas, so you'll start seeing some ribbing going on with us picking on each other. Sure. Uh, my sister makes tortillas. They're shaped like Florida. So we pick on her all the time. So, but it's, it's, just, it's just people just having fun and trying to get the word out and trying to train and because I'm single, I don't have anybody holding me back. You know, come watch the Kardashians with me. Sure, sure. And I, I, what I like here, like I'm looking on your your Facebook page right now, and this was back uh, just a few days ago, honestly. But uh, so you're running your radio class. So you published that you'd be running that class and where it was going to be located at. Yes, yes. So, actually, so people that are in the area, or maybe someone that happens to be in the area for uh, for whatever reason can find out about stuff like that. And it's not just a virtual community. You've got the offline component as well. Oh, yeah. Well, um, we did the radio class. Uh, some three per We met some three percenters uh, at a meetup here a while back. We mentioned it. They asked if we could do one in their area. So I was like, yeah, well, that's more efficient for two of us to travel than ten of you guys to come down here. We created an event on Facebook, posted it, started putting the word out. We got some good people to go to that one. Um, I was just asked yesterday, I'm speaking, and again, this is Quitman, Texas, it's a little town, I'm speaking at the Wood County Tea Party uh, meeting on this coming Monday, um, just talking to them about preparedness. They've only given me an hour, I don't know how I'm going to work that in. Um, <laughs> then there's a, uh, the local Arboretum is having a class here locally on seed propagation of herbs. So because we're going to that, I created an event on our Facebook. So any kind of preparedness stuff that's going on in our area, we create an event to help sponsor that event. That's great, so man. We're just trying to get as much word out and get as, 
people as trained as possible. I, uh, if, since you've got a little more pull with Bob, uh, Bob Wells down there, I keep telling him that in his slow times in the winter, he needs to charge $20 a head and have a clinic on anything. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I would pay $20 a head to go down and listen to Bob talk for four hours about whatever. Well, as we're launching this plan of the week thing, I'm really hitting him up hard to do something for the MSB, too. I, th- I think if we can get him to even do it like a five-point discount, I think that'd be great for folks. And uh, that would help everybody because he does ship, especially in the spring. If he wants stuff in the fall, everything's in a pot. Yeah. Um, but in the spring, I mean, he'll ship bear roots. Actually, winter and spring, he'll ship bear roots anywhere in the country. Oh, yeah. Um, so that, that'd be cool. I agree. I mean, I think there's more and more especially small business folks that are trying to figure out, well, how do I get more business? Well, talk to people, do shit with people, form a relationship with people. You know, I mean, there's tons of people want to learn how to graft. If you run a nursery, you know how to graft uh, or you wouldn't have a nursery, you know, or, or, or there's tons of people that want to know, well, how do I select the right varieties of trees and things like that? And, a lot of these guys could run little events like you're talking about, and you don't need to make a ton of money off them. You make enough money to make everybody happy while they're there. That's what we try to do with our with our classes. We make some money off them, but we try to make sure that you leave here. If you left here hungry or bored or or not tired, it's your own fault. Yeah. Like we try to make it like, I, I mean, we try to make it where people are like, I want to come back to this event just for the experience. Yeah, my yeah. friend Dawn, who did your class, she said that. Yeah, she goes, yeah, you were. You were, you were fat and happy when you left, and you took all the information. Yeah, definitely. We try to make, like, the edge. Like, by the time you're over with it, you're like, damn, the education was, like, icing. Yeah. Like, the experience was, was the meat, and that was just the icing that now I know all this stuff. And I think there's a lot of opportunity for people to do stuff like that. But, again, um, the, face, the Facebook page, folks, is facebook.com, N-E Texas Preppers. So that's slash N-E Texas Preppers. Uh, for Northeast Texas Preppers, and uh, you can connect with Joe and the rest of his network there. And Joe, I I really appreciate you being on the air with me. Oh, today. thanks for having me, Jack, and keep up the good work because I'm I'm listening to you every day. That's just for all right, folks. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko today, along with uh, Mexican Joe, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Nobody up there.